Thanks, Greg. Let's pray as we come to this um, part of God's word. Uh, Great God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that helps us to interpret what you have already revealed, that we might be illuminated. And we pray that that would happen again this morning, that your Spirit would help us to see what perhaps we haven't seen before, to, to grasp things more clearly, and so to love and trust you more. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a valuable life lesson in the famous book, The Hiding Place, set in World War II Holland, uh, written by Corrie ten Boom. And because of something that she heard in school, Corrie asked her dad, what, what is sex sin, Dad? What's sex sin? While the two of them were riding on a train. And to explain, the father asked little Corrie to carry his suitcase off the train. It was too heavy, and, and Corrie tried, but just couldn't lift it, full of watch pieces. He said, I wouldn't be much of a father if I expected you to carry this, would I? And it's the same with knowledge, he said to his daughter. You need to trust that I, your father, will give you knowledge at the right time. Well, over the years as a Christian, I've been through periods where I've wrestled with God about heavy things, like the justice of his judgment. Why is it the judgment never ends after a finite life of sin? Why is the road to destruction broad and the path to life narrow? Why doesn't he save more than he does? And trying to carry these heavy suitcases day after day is not actually what he calls his children to do. It's exhausting. And it's also naive to think we'll work all these things out, such big questions. Sometimes, too, it stems more from distrust than trust in our Heavenly Father's trustworthy character. John Calvin teaches us the wisdom of learned ignorance, he calls it. Learning what God gives us includes knowing the limits of what he gives us and is revealed to us. And the craving to know always what is beyond what is knowable, he calls a kind of madness. And yet, and yet, by providing us with Romans 9, God is today again saying, Here, David, here, DPC. It is for your assurance that I share more today with you of why I do what I do. In Romans 9, God provides some answers that are not exhaustive, but they are sufficient for us, as well as being glorious and very assuring for God's people. So one question the text answers, if I can put it relationally to God, our Father, and the best theology, the best thinking about God is always done as we come to him as Father, not as an abstract force or some being that we don't trust. But why, Heavenly Father, do you save some and not others? Why, Heavenly Father, do you save some and not others? Let's bring that question to him this morning, as I think the chapter answers it kindly for us. If you cast back your mind, or perhaps memory, to last week, at the end of Romans 8, you'll see there in the chapter reasons for Christians to smile. And we saw last week that God is for us. That's the great message of Romans 8, and the end of it in particular. Nothing can separate us from God because he chose us. He predestined and called and justified and will surely glorify us. His spirit in us is the first down payment assuring us of these great realities. After church last Sunday, someone asked a very natural follow-up question, David, you've been speaking about 
those God has chosen, what about those God has not chosen? And I said, are you coming back next Sunday? And the person answered, yes. And I said, great, because Paul anticipates that very question. It's more than an intellectual question too, isn't it? If you've been around for a little while, it's a question we can feel deeply, especially when we think of a a loved parent or a spouse or a child. One of our kids, perhaps, who doesn't seem to be walking in Christ's ways or a friend who's facing death without Christ. In Paul's case, it wasn't just an individual he had in mind, but most of Israel, his beloved nation, who had en masse rejected largely Jesus as Messiah. There were exceptions like Paul and Peter and John and thousands more. But Paul is distressed by this. And so point one, Paul then starts with the tragedy of Israel. Many years ago, an elderly church-going man told me about his daughter who had married a Jew. And when his daughter asked about this, he said, well, my advice is that if you're going to be a religious Jew... Do it properly. Don't hold back. Dive right in. Our conversation followed by my concern about his thinking. Are you assuming Judaism is on an equal footing with Christianity by that advice you gave your daughter? He seemed to think it's okay with God if we live as though the Messiah, the rescuer, the Son of God, is not Jesus and has not come. That's the assumption behind his advice. Paul, the Jew, of course, had no such confusion, and he felt very personally how sad and costly it is to reject the Messiah, whom Paul now recognises is indeed God over all, as he says there in verse 5. But let's begin with verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. There's an earnest start, isn't it? That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. What he says next is extraordinary, the love he has for his fellow Jews, the readiness even to sacrifice his eternal salvation for their good. For I could wish that I myself, verse 3, were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. It's hard to comprehend how Paul could say that. It resembles Moses in the Old Testament. Lord, can you take it out on me instead of taking it out on them? the justice and judgment they deserve. But it does also give us a real prod, doesn't it? If we cared that much for the lost, what would we not do to share the gospel with them? In my case at the moment, a small project that's on my nerves is we need to get signage up. I just look at all the traffic going past. We've got Christianity Explored going. I'd love to have let the world know about that more, and it weighs on me to let the lost world know that something is happening here. A loving community, yes, but more significantly, God and forgiveness can be found here. If you cared more for the lost, how would that start to look? And how would you start to resemble Paul and Jesus more than you currently do? Great sorrow, unceasing anguish. It's not only joy and peace we have as a Christian, but we hold it in tension with this lament as well. Paul who rejoices is Paul who laments. He's ready to sacrifice so much, if only the lost Jews who had received so much light and blessing, verses 4 to 5, would enter into that light by coming to Jesus, the one they are waiting for. 
His fellow Jews are not saved unless they acknowledge Jesus as Lord, unless they too become Christians. How exciting it would be to see us as a church really start to embrace this lost concern, a concern for the lost, and to develop a prayerful burden for them, as Paul speaks of at the beginning of chapter 10. Secondly, in rewording the second point in your outline, I prefer these words for point two, God's children are the chosen, verses 6 to 13. When I used to mark hundreds of essays at Bible college, um, I'd urge students to help their readers by beginning their paragraphs with a subject sentence, a guiding sentence. Show us where we're going. And Paul does this too in verse 6 and throughout the chapter. Verse 6, it is not as though God's word had failed. And then verses 6 to 13 demonstrate this. Israel's rejection of Jesus is due to no fault of God's word. 4 verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. He then explains that God always intended to save a remnant of national Israel. Of Abraham's children, he chose Isaac, but not Ishmael. And then of Isaac's sons, he chose Jacob, but not Esau, as the special line of God's blessing is chosen by God. What do we learn from this? Well, God's true children are those God has chosen, a remnant from within a larger group all the way through Scripture. And so when one Jew or a million Jews reject God, it is not God's word failing. That one or that million are actually demonstrating the truth that has been there from the start in God's word. God first chooses or does not choose an Israelite before that Israelite chooses or does not choose God. Paul further explains in verse 11, Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved but Esau I hated. The argument builds through those verses. Uh, The first example with an Egyptian mother, the second example with the same mother, the first example post-birth, the second example pre-birth. And even twins. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Loved, hated. Did God literally hate Esau? Now I take it this is a Jewish way of making a strong contrast between what is first and what is second. It's put so starkly, though, that we don't miss the point. And so Jesus says similarly, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Jesus, of course, isn't asking us to hate our family members, but to grasp the order of priority. There is no close competition between first and second. God said unmistakably, before they were even born, I chose Jacob, not Esau. And so to see my promises continue through Israel's history, watch the life of Jacob, not Esau. Well, I wonder if you could put your hands up here if anyone here ran with the Olympic torch as it made its way to Sydney in the year 2000. Anyone run the torch? No? Didn't think so. I'd be surprised. Oh, we had, okay, someone who knows someone. (laughs) One point of separation, that's pretty good. 
what we might ask is, is it unfair that any of us weren't chosen for that task? For such privileges, it would seem strange to call missing out unfair, wouldn't it? We wouldn't expect that role, but we'd consider it instead a huge privilege if we were chosen. And that's the perspective of Scripture. Not why weren't more chosen, but wow, God can save me? God can save anyone? He forgives sinners all of their sin by taking it even upon himself? Isn't that extraordinary? Amazing grace is the great hymn of the Christian church. And that's where Paul is taking us next, verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. Point three, God is free to show mercy and free to not show mercy or even to harden. Verses 14 to 18, God is not unjust for he says to Moses, verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's only good. It does not, verse 16, therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Besides the account in the Bible, a large portion of the world would have seen movies like the Ten Commandments or more recently the Prince of Egypt. The historical Pharaoh who is left unnamed in the book of Exodus, who engaged with the God of Israel in battle effectively, had a role far more significant than he would have expected. Pharaoh was just being himself. But his stubborn refusal to let Israel go was no accident. Notice in verse 17, which is quoting Exodus 9 that we read earlier, that God brought Pharaoh to prominence. Why? To show the world his glory. Verse 17 says, For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and the flip side, he even hardens whom he wants to harden. Part of God's judgment on Pharaoh was to harden him further in his stance against God. That is, we can't only say that God is in control when people do right God doesn't sin and doesn't tempt us to sin, but he is also at work through those who do wrong. In Jesus' ministry, we see this clearly. God's perfect purposes involve the evil of religious leaders and Judas Iscariot and Pontius Pilate and Herod and the soldiers, demons even. No human or spiritual opponent can thwart his plans. And when Satan is tempting Judas to betray Jesus... Little does Satan know or does Judas know that they are unwittingly achieving God's purposes through their evil plans to assassinate God's son, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. We humans are responsible for our own sin and yet God's purposes are never thwarted by our own sin. They are always only advanced. It's deeply assuring For us as God's people, feeling distressed by a cruel world or wondering, is everything under control? If God's will is so influential, even in the realms of good and evil, Paul anticipates the next question that might come to some of our minds too, verse 19. One of you might say to me, well, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will if this is all part of his plan? 
Is it fate? And if it is, are we to be blamed for for that? Point four. God may provide answers, but who are we to demand them? Verses 19 to 21. Verse 20. But who are you, O human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? It reminds me of the words of the 19th century English philosopher John Stuart Mill, who refused to call God good because God didn't match his own definition or understanding of goodness. Referring to God, Mill said, I will call no being good, who is not what I mean when I apply the term good to my fellow creatures. And if such a being can sentence me to hell for not so calling him, to hell I will go. It's a very foolish ultimatum, isn't it? God on my terms or no God at all? And verse 20 provides a more humble, wise approach to God. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Of course he does. God will always be consistent with his good character. But humans rebelling against God have no claim against him. Every mouth will be silent before him on the day of his judgment. But as we move to point five, God is shedding more light here about his ways for his children's assurance. This next passage is extraordinary. I don't think it's very well known among Christians or in the church. It's not one I've studied a lot, but I'm intrigued by it, and it's extraordinary. There aren't many like it in the New Testament. Point five, what if God's wrath upon the deserving somehow displays his glory? I'll read it slowly. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Often God's power, his goodness, his kindness, are seen in the context of defending his people from something, someone. We've mentioned Pharaoh so far, the classic example. But you might also think of God's power to protect Esther and Daniel and David from, and, and various kings of Israel. God patiently allows the stirrings, the plottings, the schemings of people and nations. And the way Jesus puts it in his parable, the weeds and the wheat are going to coexist until the harvest and separation occurs. Our skeptic friends might ask, how can we believe in a God who lets bad things happen? That's a very common question, isn't it? As though good from God is a human right or as though that's a condition for us to trust him and and know him and understand him from his own word. But better questions would be, how can God be so patient with such a messed up world? How can God bear its evil and my part in the world's evil? Whether it's the stories in the news reporting the everyday murder or abuse or deception or the walk as Ashley and I had on Friday where you overhear tough domestic situations even in a 10-second overlap. 
Um, in David Cook's devotional that we, many of us received earlier in the year, come to me if you need one, haven't got one yet. But he summarises simply the complexity and, and some of the depth of this. Referring to the potter, the devotional says, why does God act like this? Why doesn't he just select everyone? He did this to glorify himself. Now the next bit, listen to this. The unbeliever, by his stubborn resistance, elevates God's patience. The believer, by his undeserved acceptance, elevates God's mercy. I'll say it again. The unbeliever, by his stubborn resistance, elevates God's patience. The believer, by his undeserved acceptance, elevates God's mercy. So the unbeliever is a shout-out to God's patience. The believer is a testimony to God's mercy. All is working for God's glory. And so through sinner and through saint, through evil, through good, through the unchosen, through the chosen, God's patience and his mercy are being displayed for those with eyes now privileged to see it. You think, oh, what a troubled world we're in. And you're right to think that. Your next thought can be patience and mercy. Patience and mercy, that's what I see in our messed up world, God's patience and mercy. How can our current world be explained? Our current world can be explained with the truth that God is withholding his final judgment and showing his ongoing kindness to those who hate or just ignore him. Why does God allow that to keep going? Because he is preparing from the world a remnant a people to be his children forever. While there is lots of bad stuff going on, the wheat is growing. Wheat is being born. Some of you celebrating, children, grandchildren. Weed and wheat coexist so the wheat can be born and and come into God's kingdom and later be gathered. Paul would later remember the words of the risen Lord Jesus when Paul was being threatened as well. Acts 18, 9 to 10. Don't be afraid, Paul. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Paul, keep preaching the gospel. Human history needs to continue a little longer because there are people who aren't yet in my kingdom who will enter my kingdom through your preaching. Friends, and particularly those who who may be visiting today or new Christians, This is not a light suitcase that we're dealing with today. It's great that you're here to hear about it. But it's more like Christianity chapter 5 in the handbook, not chapter 1. Again, verse 22. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. From the earliest days, Christians have recognized God works through good and through evil, but have cried out at the same time, how long, O Lord, and come, Lord Jesus. As Tertullian said, even as early as the second century AD, looking back at the cruelty of Rome in the first century towards the Christians, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs spilt ends up being seed for the church. God uses evil and persecution to persuade people of the truth of the gospel. While evil is allowed in our world, God will use it for good. God's power, God's patience, God's mercy, God's glory. Four words in this text. 
are realities that explain why God didn't destroy the earth last century, before World War I and all of that devastation, or before World War II, or Vietnam, or Korea, or African conflicts, the suffering across nations and behind closed doors of households. I'm glad he waited for me to enter his kingdom, and for you as well. In the back of my journal, my last journal, while I was wrestling with these things, I had written there, Lord, you must have an end that makes it all worthwhile. You must have an end that makes it all worthwhile. It was a statement of my trust in him as I struggled to understand it. And today, more light is being shed on that end, the purpose God has in what we see around us. It's a heavy suitcase, but God privileges us today by allowing us to feel some of the weight he carries and to know he's got everything very much under control. Lastly then, why doesn't God save more people? Why is the road broad to destruction and narrow to life? Besides what we've already seen in answer to that, lastly, point six, the Bible's perspective, again, is not why doesn't God save more, but isn't it amazing God saves anyone? And that's how the passage ends, point six, that if God hadn't saved some, all would be lost. It's a different way of thinking about it, isn't it? If God hadn't saved some, all would be lost. Verse 25, as God says in the Old Testament prophecy of Hosea, looking forward, I one day will call them my people who are not my people, the nations, the Gentiles, and I will call her my loved one who is not currently my loved one. Verse 26, and in the very place, whether it's Brazil or Vanuatu, Arnhem Land, Sydney, where it was said of them before the gospel arrived, you are not my people, there they will be called because of the gospel, children of the living God. Or verse 29, it's just as Isaiah said previously, again, looking forward, unless the Lord Almighty had left us with descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. That's looking back as well. Christians praise God because he mercifully spared us, his remnant, from the judgment we know we deserve. When I was wrestling with this again some years ago, the hymn, The Lord is King, helped me. Let me read two of the verses of this hymn to close. The Lord is King, who then shall dare? Resist his will, distrust his care, or murmur at his wise decrees, or doubt his royal promises. The Lord is King, child of the dust, the judge of all the earth is just. Holy and true are all his ways. Let every creature speak his praise. Israel's story is tragic. Here's this message in a nutshell. Israel's story is tragic, but God's children are the chosen. God is free to show and to withhold mercy. He need not answer our questions. But it is enough to know his wrath and mercy display his power and glory. And sixth, we rejoice that by saving some, all are not lost. Let's pray. Our great God, oh, the depths of the riches of your wisdom and knowledge, how unsearchable your judgments and your paths beyond tracing out. 
Who has known the fullness of your mind? Who has ever counselled you? Who has ever given to you that you should repay us? For from you and through you and for you are all things. To you be the glory forever. Father, forgive us when we've thought that there are dark corners in you. There are things we don't want to know about you or shouldn't know. There's some sinister element to you. And we thank you that the more we probe in faith with your word, the more light we find, the more glory. Forgive us for distrusting you. And we thank you that you give us the way forward, not to worry unduly about these things that are under your control. We thank you that the door to escaping your judgment is still patiently being held open. But now is the time we have to invite others through it. Now is the time for us to point to Jesus, the one who came to spare us. Now is the time we share the powerful gospel. And we, by your mercy, will see those you have appointed to eternal life come to you through our efforts. We recognize that on Christ's behalf, we urge people to be reconciled to you. But now is the time of your favor. Now is the day of salvation. And we rejoice in this in Jesus' name. Amen.